Our passage this morning is Hosea chapter 2, our second week in Hosea, and we're going to look at all of chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 2 this morning. Verse 1 actually belongs at the end of chapter 1, and so we're going to take chapter 2 beginning with verse 2. And much like we saw last week, the chapter starts out darkly, but it ends brightly. And we should see that again here this week. Young Christians, young disciples, and theologians... I want you to listen for the way we talk about wedding rings this morning and see if you can talk about the gospel by talking about wedding rings. And what you discuss with your family this afternoon or through the week as you're talking about the gospel, see if you can talk about the good news of Jesus by explaining it with wedding rings. This is the strange but the true and authentic good news of Jesus the Savior through Hosea the prophet of heartbreak. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst." Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths." She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, 
the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say... You are my God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we would walk naked and stripped and howling like jackals if we were left in our sin. Full of shame and guilt and with no ability to do anything about it. But with the gospel of Jesus in the cross and the resurrection... We're left with songs of joy and shouts and laughter and raising glasses to toast and hugs and embraces for joy. And we pray once again, Lord, that you would take our naked howling and turn it into the laughter of the gospel. If you'll do that for us again this morning and throughout this week, and we will give you thanks. Teach us the lessons of this passage. Make us the bride you would have us be. And for this also, we will exalt your name. And we ask all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? My wedding ring is buried in the Caribbean Sea. I'd have worn it for 14 years on Tuesday had I not lost it in the open water this summer. We were on a snorkeling trip and I put my mask on and my fins on and I stepped off the side of the boat into the blue world of silence in slow motion. And we weren't very deep, only seven or eight feet at this point. But when I felt my ring slide off my finger, I felt my heart sink to the bottom with it. I made a dive to grab it, but I missed it. And I watched it go somersaulting and glinting all the way to the bottom. By the time I caught my breath, I got my wits together, and I looked down to see if I could spot it. I'd kicked up too much sand from the bottom, and I buried the thing that I was trying to find. So I did the only thing I could do. I left it. We chased a sea turtle eating grass in the shallows, and we dove the reef and saw a school of tarpon. And for a while, I floated over a grouper larger than me. And a barracuda came sliding by in silvery menace, and we swam with sharks and stingrays, and at the end of the day, when everybody was headed back to the boat, I got a friend to help me make a few more desperate dives to see if we could find it. 
but it was gone. I climbed back onto the boat and slumped into the seat next to Jennifer, and I didn't know what else to say, so I gave her a breathless, I'm sorry. And she gave me a kiss. And the other divers asked what had happened, and we explained I lost my wedding ring. And one diver joked, I don't see what the problem is. Sounds like you're single again. (laughs) And there's something in us that jumps at the thought. Spiritual singleness. That idea right there carries us to the heart of Hosea's prophecy. Because it's not that the bride lost her wedding ring on vacation. It's that the bride didn't want to wear it anymore. So she chartered a boat and traveled miles offshore until land was out of sight. And the engines are cut off. And she stands in the bow and laughs as she says her husband's name. And she pulls the ring off her finger. And she throws it as far into the blue nothing as her strength can reach. When we come to chapter 2, we've made a transition. We're no longer looking at Hosea's family anymore. We're looking at God's marriage to his people. But you understand how we got there. Hosea and his family are a metaphor. Now we're inside the analogy, but Hosea and his family are the analogy for us. So Hosea's given this heartbreaking family because every time his wife is seen dangling from the arm of a new playboy as she stumbles out of a tavern... And every time Hosea has to bail her out of jail and her name shows up in the morning papers and the police blot her for vague misdemeanors, but the neighbors snicker and murmur gossipy things into their morning coffee. And every time Hosea stands on the front steps of his house and he calls his children home for supper with their embarrassing names, massacre, no pity, not even mine. Come home. It's time for dinner. Every time we see Hosea and his family, we're supposed to recognize ourselves. All of Israel and all of humanity are being shown how we treat God. And here's the offense. Love. The real kind. Not the cheap knockoff versions that we easily fall for. The kind of love... That God exercises perfect love. Love that says, there is no cost I'm not willing to bear for you. I want to answer all your needs. I want to provide everything you require. I want to enjoy you. I want to comfort you when you need comforting. I want to delight in you in every way there is to delight in you. And when having you means suffering, I want to do that too. All that comes with having you, I want to pay all the responsibilities and the obligations and the privileged work of surprising you and overwhelming you with joys. I want it all. And I want you to want to look nowhere else for these things. That's important. I want you to want to look nowhere else for these things. The word for this kind of love is covenant. We use that word around here a lot. That word doesn't mean legal contract drawn up by lawyers, signed, notarized, 
put on file with the county clerk. It's much more alive and active than that. It's closer to a wedding vow to look into someone else's eyes and pledge to give your whole self with more depth and meaning and solemnity than the whole Texas Bar Association with all of its wherefores and whereases could ever hope to pull off. And God had given Himself in that way to His people. And His people said, Really? Is that it? Is that all you got? Because that's not nearly good enough. You are not the God that we want. So they worshipped other gods. And they married foreign peoples. And they took up their strange, shadowy practices. Their superstitious customs that look nothing like the faith and the worship their God had given to them. And they make political treaties with their neighbors. And military treaties with superpowers. And they trusted in their own sense of the way things should be instead of listening to the scriptures. And they trusted in their own resourcefulness and strength for their well-being. And they forgot their true husband. And in all of it, they were saying, your love's not enough. You're not thrilling enough. You're not satisfying enough. You're not beautiful enough. You can't possibly capture our hearts. So the bride, God's people, not trusting His love, cut her wedding gown into a miniskirt. And turned her veil into fishnet stockings. And she puts on too much makeup and too little clothing. And she leaves her husband's house and hitches a ride to the dive bar out on the highway. And she laughs a little too loud and leans in a little too close. And she eats up the attention the regulars pour out on her. For the price of a few drinks, they know exactly what she's willing to do. But what's she after? Verse 5 tells us she takes up with these other lovers because she's after bread and water and wool and flax and oil and wine. So they pour drinks into her and they order her the prime rib and some of them bring her cheap costume jewelry and they buy her clothes and give her perfume. She's after a mythical security. There's this ghost that haunts her. What if, what if someone out there can give me a more, a happiness that I can't even define? So she puts her trust and her hope in whomever promises to provide in the moment. And she forfeits the very thing she needs. Love. There's a glimmer of the depth of her betrayal in the strangeness of verse 16. And that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal. My Baal? That can't be right. Baal is the name of another god. Baal is the name of the Canaanite fertility god. Why would Israel ever call the living God by the name of Baal? Ah, you see? You see what the bride has done? She calls out the wrong name in the bedroom. 
but it gives us a complete picture. The bride responds to the groom's love by running away, not believing that he can love her, that he knows how to, that he's willing and able. The bride runs away. So what's a true husband to do? A husband who every time he looks out the front window, he sees his wife working the corner at the end of the block, leaning into strange cars to haggle lusty prices. A husband who every time he moves near to her, she whispers someone else's name hot in his ear. He probably goes out into the garage and punches the heavy bag hanging from the rafters. And he tries to think straight, but he only sees red. And his friends come over and sit in the garage with him. And they tell him between punches and cracking open fresh cans of beer, leave her, she's no good, and she's not. In verse 3, they even suggest a drastic course, divorce her and don't do it quietly. Make her a public spectacle. Tie her to a post in the center of town and strip her naked so everyone knows what she is and what she's done and write the names of her lovers on a sign and hang it around her neck and when the decent folks pass by, they'll spit on her and pity you. It's his legal right to do it and no one would blame him if he did. So he holds his sweaty head in his hands with the blood of rage seeping through the tape on his knuckles. And he would have a splitting headache if it weren't for the ache in his heart. And when he closes his eyes, he can only think about his lawyer's phone number and restoring what scraps are left of his reputation. But mostly when he closes his eyes, he thinks about his wife in the wedding gown he gave her, walking down the aisle to meet him. He still wants her like that. He should leave her, but he can't. He could make a public mockery of her, but he won't. He loves her. So he punches the bag with one last punch that shakes heaven and earth. And he storms out of the garage and he marches down the driveway with tears streaming down his face. And he runs down the street and he puts a brick through the windshield of the car his wife is leaning into. And the John speeds away and they're left there together in the gutter. She's there by choice and he's come to lift her out of it. And she says to him in verse 8, you can't give me what I need. And without whining, without pleading, with more intention than the day on which he first spoke them to her, the groom recites his wedding vows in verses 16 through 23. He takes her face in his hands and he says, You don't understand. I will outgive all others. For all our running away, Jesus the groom always chases us. That's what Hosea 2 is saying. You need more than a sentimental groom who can recite movie lines under a street lamp while 
His wife is pulling away so that she can chase after other men. You need a groom who won't quit, a groom who won't give up, a groom who won't let go. And look at the words this groom uses for his chase in verse 14. I'll bring her out into the wilderness to a place the casual lovers would never follow, a place they cannot reach her. I'll take her to a place of emptiness where she can't turn to anyone else and she'll truly need me and there I'll speak tenderly to her. I'll give myself to her again. And I love this verb at the beginning of the verse. I will allure her. I'll attract her. I'll entice her. I'll make myself desirable to her. The gospel is the runaway bride has an alluring husband. A husband who chases and catches and keeps. A husband who wins back his bride eternally. This groom chases his bride down all her dark alleys into all the back rooms where she's known by name. He chases her into her fear of not being loved, into her insecurity, into her forgetfulness. Because his vows aren't just something he said a long time ago and they're meaningful to him in some abstract way. He chases her because his vows are written in his flesh. He's a living version of his vows. He is the vow, I will never leave you or forsake you. Come to life. So he chases his bride down all of her dead ends into her disasters, into her shame, into her scandal and her guilt. He chases her through all the gossipy whispers into her smeared name, her ruined reputation. He chases her into her nakedness and he catches her with the mercy of a cross. And he does not tie her to a post in the middle of town. He strips himself naked and he puts himself on her stake of humiliation where it seems he's unable to do much of anything but hang there and bleed and die. But that's where he gives her a kiss that covers all of her disgrace. A hot, passionate kiss that never goes cold. And he chases his bride to her seedy hotel rooms and he kicks in the doors and he breaks her lover's arms who jump up naked and foolish to fight him and he lifts her up out of dirty beds of death like walking out of a tomb. And he whispers to her through tears of joy streaming down his face. So glad to feel the weight of his true love hanging in his arms again. And he says, you don't belong here. You belong with me. And you don't have to come here anymore. The end of the chapter, the very last phrase of the chapter is the gospel refrain. After the grooms, I'll take her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her there. I will allure her again. The answer from the bride is, you are my God. You are my groom. It works. The groom's never tiring, chasing love works. And she doesn't forget her husband any longer. 
She forgets how to find her way to those run-down hotels. She forgets the dingy room numbers her old lovers live behind. The relentless chasing of the groom breaks the bride's relentless need to run away. And I would testify to that. I would say that's true. The groom chasing me is what brings me to a happy end in my unfaithfulness. He takes me to the wilderness, the place of emptiness, and he makes me want the fullness of his love again. I think the fundamental struggle of the Christian life, if you're a disciple, or the fundamental struggle for faith, the struggle to believe and follow Jesus, if you're a skeptic, I think the struggle is very simple. It's the struggle to stop living as if we're spiritually single and unattached and entirely on our own. And it's the struggle to begin living as spiritually married. In the words of the passage, it's to be allured by the groom. And once we're allured by the groom, we're not seduced by every imposter who comes along with quick comfort or easy escape or sugary solutions in the moment. What makes us a true bride is by being amazed at the true husband. And here's how he would tell you to be allured with him in this chapter. Go to him with every need. Literally, that's what he's calling for in this passage. Everything. You take everything to him. Try this. Just try it for a week, two weeks, a month. Everything you need. Turn to Him with it. Those things that are such of such magnitude, they're desperate and urgent, matters of life and death, cataclysmic. Everything hangs in the balance here. These things are hopeless save for a miracle, like a failing marriage or tragic parenting or a physical mental disorder that no one can solve and heal or the salvation of a loved one, or sexual slavery of some kind, deliverance from some ravenous temptation, the ability to forgive someone who disappoints you and hurts you again and again. And go to him with the things that are very ordinary, the things that are everyday and routine and mundane, run-of-the-mill, hardly worth mentioning, things like the need for patience, And love for your parents, the ability to obey your parents, or to love your brothers and sisters, or to love a neighbor who's not so easy to love. Or ask him for rent money and groceries. Ask him to help you do your math homework and understand it. Every week I go into my study and I shut the door and I spend days praying. I don't know what to say in a sermon. You'll have to help me. And somehow every week, I have a sermon to give. Or ask him for the discipline to just get out of bed in the morning. To do the very unthrilling, but the good work he's given you to do that day. Ask him for all of those things. That's what marriage is. And that's what makes the charged imagery of married love the perfect picture of the way God gives himself to his people through Christ. 
is to be so wrapped up in another that the rest of the world is shut out. But in our panic, in our confusion, in our discontent, we invite the world in for a free-for-all, an orgy. And we end up brazen and blushing. Two things the bride was never meant to be. It's not that we've tried the groom's love and found that it's missing something. Hosea 2 says it's that we've never really tried the groom's love. Ask him for everything. He may give you exactly what you ask, or he may refuse what you ask in order to give you mysteriously better. But whatever he gives you, it's all designed for love, so you won't have to or want to look elsewhere. And according to verses 19 and 20, the groom gives to his bride not just grain and wine and money for the mortgage payment, Not just her daily needs, which he does give to her. But he also gives to her her deeper heart needs. The things she doesn't even know how to ask for. And the things her other lovers don't have to give. Five wedding gifts the groom gives to his bride over and over and over again. And they never run out and he never tires of giving them. Righteousness. A desire for his purity and justice that's being treated rightly, being treated with dignity. And steadfast love, love that doesn't tire, go stale, or die out. And mercy, tenderness for weakness, and faithfulness that's eyes to recognize the perfect love of the groom to make a happy end of our prostitution. And love that gives so much of himself means if you're a skeptic, your search for love can end right here. The love you're looking for is the love Jesus has to give. And if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, you can finally unlearn your running away. The gospel reality is No matter how many times I charter a boat and sail out on the water until land is out of sight. No matter how many times I stand in the bow and pull the ring off my finger and laugh as I think about my groom and scoff and say, you don't love me, you don't give me what I need or what I desire. And all the while he's working behind the scenes to give me better. No matter how many times I throw my ring out into the waves for it to sink to the bottom, Jesus plunges in after it, all the way to the cold, dark depths. And he loses breath, and he loses consciousness, and he drowns there. But for love of me, of all the ridiculous notions, for love of me, Somehow he takes life back into himself. Hovering on the bottom, he jolts back to consciousness and he picks my ring up out of the murk. And with overwhelming joy, he swims it back to the surface and he puts it back on my finger. He won't let me escape the gospel of his choosing me. The gospel of his pursuing me. 
The gospel of his paying the wedding price in blood. The gospel of his not being turned away from me, no matter how disgusting my sin. The gospel of his always drawing me closer. The gospel of his awkward but gracious working in me. The gospel is Jesus salvaging a thrown away ring and saying, no, you can't be rid of me. Because I love you forever. And one of these times, that love will cause me to stop short and not remove the ring. And not throw it into the depths. And one of these times, I won't even reach to take it off. I'll remember his love. And I'll be allured by it. And I'll say, You are my God. You are my groom. Why would I run? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, O Lord, hear again from your runaway people. Forgive us for all the times we flee and we look for love elsewhere in false lovers, in lovers who can't give us such good gifts, who can't love us so deeply as you do. And oh, Lord, we pray that you would revive us with this gospel. For all of our running away, we have a groom that chases us. Your chasing is what breaks our need to flee. You outgive and outlove all others. And in eating bread and drinking wine, we're reminded of it. All of the back alleys, the dead ends, the seedy hotel rooms we've run to again and again for some assurance, some comfort, some need in the moment. No one has loved us like the Lord Jesus with his sacrifice and his righteousness and his rising. Make us clean from all of our sins and fill our hearts once again with faith and allure us, pull us away from the arms of false lovers once again entice us with the perfect love of our God through the Savior Jesus and by the constant work of the Holy Spirit renewing our hearts and our whole selves. And if you'll give to us these things, we will give you thanks.